Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. On today's episode, we continue last week's story. The Governor-General is on a grand tour of the communities around Malifaux, travelling in his hulking mobile fortress, the Majestic. Padita Ortega has delivered a warning about the new order he is spreading, and a mysterious guild operative has approached Jacob Lynch with a request for help getting through the breach back to Earthside. But these stories must wait. Trouble is brewing in the mining town of Sunbeam, and Malifaux's quarantine zone is about to change forever. I hope you enjoy part two of Shifting Loyalties, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Discount Dave's Used Furniture in Sunbeam. They say lightning never strikes twice, but we're once again holding our union-approved strike sale. Come on down to Discount Dave's and find everything you need for building your barricade. Our oak tops tables are guaranteed to stop a bullet. They put the solid in solidarity. We have enough scrap wood and detritus to block even the largest boulevard, and our ottomans are ideal for climbing on top of, hoisting a flag in your clenched fist, and rallying your comrades about you. That's Discount Dave's Used Furniture. The town hall burned, of course, but it was what happened just before that which made the evening really interesting. English Ivan was there in the thick of it. He'd come into Sunbeam the previous afternoon by private coach, paid for with script that couldn't be traced to the Union. He had not reported to the MNSU officers the way all members were supposed to do when they arrived at a new district. Instead, he had sat in his stuffy little hotel room, rereading his coded instructions and wondering if Ramos had finally gone completely mad. In the evening he had taken a stroll, keeping well away from the miners' pubs. His business here had to be a secret, at least for now. That morning he'd pulled a scarf around his mouth and a cap down over his eyes and walked out to watch the rumbling metal monster that was the Majestic come labouring up from the lowlands. He had heard the marchers come down Sussex Street, and hadn't been able to help a proud smile when the sound of all hell breaking loose came from the square. And now here he was at sundown, in a street full of surging crowd and flickering torchlight, shouting back, make room, let them through, let them through. The injured were falling back from the fighting, staggering on their own or supported by their comrades, men and women alike cradling broken limbs or wiping at bloody faces. Up ahead at the square in the town hall, the clamour only intensified. Ivan didn't like this. He was no firebrand, no picket-line warrior. 
He was at his best in the Union's small, precise secret operations, where he could use his mind like the weapon it was. There just wasn't a place for that here. It would be like trying to fight a cattle stampede with a surgical scalpel. Damn Ramos and his special missions. Two pairs of stretcher bearers shoved past, and Ivan took advantage of the gap they opened to work his way forward through the crowd. Over the shouting he could hear wildly blowing guard whistles, and a moment later the mass of people in front of him roared with satisfaction. The guild thugs were retreating. Ivan smiled. That made five times they tried to break the lines and failed. The guild would deny it, and the record wouldn't print it, but the truth would get out. The governor-general trapped like a rat in the town hall, unable to scuttle back to his armoured bolt hole because of the anger of the good working people of Sunbeam. Powerful stuff. He pushed a little further, but the crowd here was packed solid. Ivan was not a big man, but even if he had been, he'd have needed a rail golem to force a path. So he went up instead, half vaulting up on the men in front of him, calmly ignoring their glares. He still couldn't see much more than the MNSU banners bobbing up and down against the bright yellow lights of the Sunbeam Town Hall across the square. Hey! It was one of the men whose shoulder he was using, a beefy fellow whose stubbly face was cratered with pink pox scars from some long-ago blasting accident. Careful! No way to see what's going on otherwise, is there? Ivan answered him. You can put up with this or you can give me a running report, how's that? He dropped down to rest his arms, and the man turned on him. He towered more than a full head over Ivan. No shoving forward, he said. Workers work together, right? Didn't you listen to May? Hold the line. Hold the line. Don't initiate. Force the guild to be the aggressors. It made for potent propaganda when it could be adhered to. He wondered how long this crowd would... Hang on a minute. May Feng is here? She only went and led the bloody march down Sussex Street, said Ivan's other support post, a thick-set gent with a watchman's cape and a stylish grey goatee. Where have you been hiding? Anywhere I can, Ivan said, and made to boost himself up again. Oi there, the gent said, turning to look at Ivan properly. I know you. I don't think so. No, no, I know you. You're English. With little visible movement and no discernible effort, Ivan reached up clamped the man's lips together with his fingers, and yanked the surprised face downward. If you know who I am, he said, relying on the ruckus around them to make sure his words didn't carry, then you know I must be here on business, and you know I don't answer questions, and I don't accept setbacks. The man nodded, to the extent that Ivan's pincer grip would allow it. Good. Now, get me to the front of the line. It was easier said than done. Big though the two men were, the crowd was still packed tight. In the end, they simply each took hold of one of Ivan's arms and bodily hoisted him up and forward. He was still up there when the Governor-General came out onto the balcony, and that meant Ivan saw the whole thing perfectly. He came out alone, without the gaggle of town dignitaries who usually used such occasions to wave and preen. Ivan waited for a grand gesture, an order to the frightened guild guards in the street below, some angry oratory, But there was none of that. The Governor-General just stepped to the balcony rail and turned his face to the darkening sky. His eyes and hands flashed, bright enough to be seen down the length of Sunbeam's high street. Afterimages danced in Ivan's eyes. The crowd hushed, as though the light had been a signal. English Ivan slid out of his helper's grip, working his way forward as he dropped, 
stopping one rank back inside the crowd. The Governor General's head vanished in a brilliant nimbus of light. For a moment Ivan caught his breath, trying to think of what would happen when the headless body crumpled to the balcony floor, but the man remained standing. And then, still standing parade ground straight, he rose. He levitated silently until he hung above the railing and then walked out into the empty air. Purple-blue light, eerie and silent as an aurora, surrounded him like a cloak. It made shapes, but they flickered like lightning and shifted like firelight, and Ivan could not make them out. And now the order went out to the guards. Ivan shook his head in confusion. He had heard nothing. The viceroy had not spoken, but the order had gone out from that floating figure as surely as as a pulse of energy racing across the land from a falling star. Ivan wondered why his mind had fixed on that image, and then there was no time for wondering, because the guards were advancing on the Union line again. This was no well-drilled charge. The guards jerked forward in unison as though yanked by ropes. One or two lost their footing and seemed to actually skid along the ground. Their faces were either blank or twisted into expressions too strange for Ivan to read and each guard badge threw off a glaring purple light in echo of the radiance above them. But however bizarre their manner, the guards were raising weapons. Not batons this time. Guns. Mei Feng stepped forward to meet them. English Ivan crossed paths half a dozen times with the heroine of the rail crews. He'd spoken to her twice, taken tea with her once. Now he was sure he was going to watch her die. Mei Feng planted herself in front of the guards, shouting a challenge and pointing to herself. The meaning was clear. You start with me. A roar of support went up from the marchers, and Ivan was startled to hear himself joining in. Moving stiffly, but in perfect unison, the guards swung their weapons to bear on her. There was a heavy mechanical thud as though some giant piston had fired, and Mei Feng was gone. Where she had been was a thick pillar of steam, although there had been nothing there to vent it. And where she was now? Ivan blinked. Mei Feng was in amongst the guards, standing over a sprawled man wearing sergeant stripes. Ivan barely saw Mei move, but now another guard was flying back into the second rank. A flicker of motion and two more guards reeled and fell, one with her tunic in flames. In the middle of it all, Mei Feng stood in a deep fighting pose, almost as balletic as a star theatre corophae. And then there was that metallic slamming again. A dozen shots cracked out, but the bullets crisscrossed through a second steam cloud that was no longer where Mei Feng was. As the guards milled about where she had been, Mei Feng's words rang across the square like a bell. Claim the streets! Make the town free, my friends! Rise! The crowd didn't need telling again, and when they surged into the square, they carried Ivan with them. He didn't fight it, didn't want to. His attempt at cool detachment was swamped by a hot surge of emotion at Mei Feng's voice. The Governor-General hung overhead inside nested shells of radiance like the shock waves of hot gas thrown out from an exploded star. Shapes shivered around him and were gone. A chariot pulled by rams, a high-backed throne, a breechgate. In his fists the light formed the shapes of a royal orb and scepter. Lines of blue-white power crawled across his brow like a coronet. Coruscating energy leapt from guard to guard, anchoring to them with their badges, linking them like loops of chain. The guard line reformed and met the charging Unionists head-on. 
Ivan's vision was a bouncing blur, but he heard shots, cries, and the crack of batons against flesh. There was a flood of yellow-white light, and a roar as though a foundry door had opened, and Mei Feng was in amongst them, and she was heart-stopping. It took no sensitivity to feel it, not now. Ivan wasn't gifted the way the Union's secret mages were, or even as Ramos himself was reputed to be, but he'd been around Arcanists his whole time in Malifaux, and he had never experienced anything like this. Mei Feng hung four feet above the ground, a pedestal of flame coalescing under her feet. A forest of scarlet banners ghosted through the air about her as though she were conjuring a worker's army of her own, and her every dancing movement was in time to a great shouting chant that erupted from nowhere. She sighed through the guards who mobbed about her, trying to drag and club her down, striking with fists encased in metal and haloed in flames. Every blow landing with a flash of fire and a boom like some vast industrial machine. Ivan had the sudden certainty that he wasn't watching Mei Feng and the Governor-General do battle. He was seeing the cracks through which two primal powers were erupting into the world. It was the same sensation as when he stood in amongst the gears at Hollow Marsh Station, between enormous forces that could crush him utterly. Except that here, there was no deftly engineered gap to step through. These two were going to collide. The Governor-General was now surrounded by a softly glowing mirage of himself a giant in an ornate guild dress uniform. One of the phantasm's great hands gripped a guild seal, the other a long-handled axe whose half was bound into a bundle of rods. He spoke a word. Nobody really heard what it was, but it rung distorted, buzzing echoes out of the air and the ground thrummed like a cello string. Every street lamp around the square blew out as though a grenade had gone off inside each little box of glass. The crowd swayed and rippled, silenced. Ivan felt the same oppressive urge that had settled on all of them, the urge to sink to his knees, to know his place and obey. Teeth gritted, he fought it. Then Mei Feng held up a fist, and all traces of fear in the crowd vanished. Cheering, the spell broken, they pushed the guard line back, further back, almost to the town hall steps, even the governor-general swaying back through the air as though tethered to his troops. Mei Feng's ghostly crimson banners were snapping in an intangible wind and swaying in rhythm to the crowd shouting, but something was wrong. The banners were tangling themselves about her. They were catching the flames from her hands and starting to burn, even as they dragged Mei Feng's limbs out, stretching her like a prisoner on the rack. The force of her manifestation bore her up into the air, slammed her into the crowd, bore her up again. Her eyes were shut and cords stood out on her neck. She seemed to be trying to cry out. Screams and shouts came from all around Ivan. The crowd was beyond control now. Parts of it fought, parts fled. Pure atavism, fear and rage, nothing more. Ivan was knocked to his knees and covered his head with his hands. From around him came the shrieks of the trampled. Above them, the Governor-General's voice split in the air and became a great shout like a trampling force that struck every surface on the street at once. The front of the town hall lit up with corposant that scintillated through every colour in the spectrum. English Ivan felt heat like brands pressing into the skin over his ribs and heart. Yellow-white flame and purple-blue lightning filled the square. They expanded, intensified, reflected each other's colours. Everything went white.
Ivan opened his eyes. His cheek was pressed into the rough road paving. He blinked, but that seemed to be as much movement as he could make. His body felt like lead. He could hear nothing but his own blood and breath roaring in his ears. It took several moments for memory to return. With a wrenching gasp, he staggered upright. How long had he been unconscious? He yelped as he registered the heat from the metal under his clothes, and then saw the dropped torches from the crowd were still burning. So not long. He was the only one moving. The street was piled thick with bodies, most motionless, some twitching. He could hear one or two beginning to moan with pain and shock. Gingerly, he touched his shirt. The arcane wards harnessed to him under his clothes were still hot to touch, and after a moment Ivan realized that the ornately worked metal discs were now strangely smooth. They had deflected the worst of the etheric overload from the manifestations before the town hall, but they had been scoured blank in the process. Impressive as that was, Ivan decided he wasn't going to think about it closely just now. He was going to get the hell away. Slightly to his own surprise, he walked forward instead, on wobbly legs, to where Mei Feng lay. The iron skin on her hands and forearms was cool now, and the power that had radiated out from her was gone. She was still breathing. As an old-school Union operative, Ivan had never been sure about Mei Feng. At best, she was a dangerous rival to the Delegate's Council for the loyalty of the rank and file. At worst, he suspected her of having an agenda that was not the Union's. But the memory of her, the power of her voice, the sight of her standing out in front of the line as the guards came on, that stayed with him. He stooped down, pulled one of her arms around his shoulders and dragged her upright. Her head lolled, but her breathing was picking up. Ivan got her balanced against him and looked around them again and saw the shape lying in front of the town hall steps. At first glance, it was just a heavy bundle of dark blue, bright red, gold braid. The Governor-General lay face down, arms limp by his sides, legs crooked and crossed. Ivan's nerves sang as he noticed that the flagstones now curved down in a shallow circular saucer with the body at its centre. He couldn't tell if the Viceroy were moving or if it were just a trick of the firelight. Firelight? He looked up. Flames were spilling from the upper windows of the town hall, and smoke was pluming into the sky to blot out the last of the sunset. Ivan heard a crash from inside as the floor collapsed. That couldn't have been from the march. Ivan had seen no firebombs. The hall must have started burning during the duel of manifestations, as if something in there had been enchanted the way his wards had been. Ivan's eyes narrowed. He was thinking of the elaborate seals that were being presented in every town the Majestic passed through. His thoughts were broken by a gunshot from the next street, and then another one. Concentrating now, he could hear a chilling mosaic of sounds from around him in the gloom. Shots, screams, breaking glass, crunching wood, crackling flames. Ivan had heard it's like before. In Wells Station, when the rail crew's riot he had so carefully planned out had slipped the leash into open bloody warfare. In Malifaux Segundo Milagro district, when the rattletrap ethanol distillery had exploded and fire and miasma spread through the streets. In Kelso's Gulch, the night some idiot had lit the furnaces of the relic engine Ivan had been sent there to retrieve and conjured flapping monstrosities down from the night sky. 
It was the sound of a town eating itself alive. No time to waste. Mei Feng mumbled something as they started moving laboriously away from the square, but English Ivan didn't answer her. He was already planning his report to Victor Ramos, a report that would start very simply with... Everything you predicted. Crowds had been massing along Scrivener Street since breakfast time. Dawn had been invisible behind an oppressive overcast, but the early gloomy mood lightened as the day did, and by mid-morning the commotion was actually cheerful. Street traders were collecting scrip hand over fist for sausages, dumplings, songs, roasted chestnuts, noodles, juggling, tumbling, trinkets, or whatever else they could sell. One brave young soul had even been spotted trying to sell no less than three different banned rag sheets, and a high point of the morning had been the lady hitching up her skirts and sprinting away down Piri Lane with her coat flying out behind her and three guild guards barely behind that. The crowd had cheered. For the young woman, the guards, just the spectacle generally, and had gone back to waiting, feeling rather invigorated. Even when yet more guards had pushed the crowd back and set up brightly painted red and yellow barricades to keep them there, the mob moved amiably enough. Things had been bad enough in Malifaux for so long. People wanted an outing, and spectacle on a sunny day, and that was all. The excitement level ticked up noticeably when the brass band came marching past under a fluttering guild flag. By now the overcast had lifted, and the crowd was positively merry, made merrier still by cheap bottles fetched from the groggeries along dead Georgie Lane. If, in all the clamour, anyone thought of the stories that had come down the trails from Sunbeam about the last big civic function the guild had tried to hold, nobody paid it any thought. What was one more strange dark story? in a city that had lived through so many of them recently. So they clapped along, improvised obscene lyrics, and kept their laughter mostly good-natured when the band muffed a note or got tangled up in itself attempting a turn. Best of all, the wooden rostrum at the river end of the street remained empty. Apparently there would be no speeches that day, a policy the spectators could certainly get behind. Demolition, according to the previous day's record, was set for noon sharp, and by a quarter to the hour the crowd was chanting Dine a might, Dine a might, in boisterous lack of unison. They were not, it turned out, going to use dynamite. At 11.51 the barge ramp clanked down against the Scrivener Street wharf, and the crowd fell silent at the alien wail of the guild's newfangled electric sirens, its ebullience hushed in an instant. The great ironclad Majestic rolled off the reinforced river barge that had brought it up from the construction zone docks. Its mast flags flew the guild banner higher than the chimney stacks of the houses, and its great metal flanks eclipsed top-story windows. It moved to the squeal of metal against the pavement. The front rank of the crowd shuddered and cried out as chips of stone flew at them. The sirens blared again. The cowcatcher grill that Perdita Ortega had climbed up days before had been removed. In its place was an enormous wedge-shaped bulldozer blade, curving up the ironclad's front like the prow of a trireme. As the Majestic rolled into the third block up from the river, it started to bear to the left, the edge of the blade biting into the hodgepodge brick and stone of the quarantine zone wall. 
The crowd forgot its trepidation and started to cheer the machine on, as, with a teeth-grinding scrape of steel on stone, it moved into the turn. Implacable as a glacier, the ironclad pushed on, shattering meter after meter of wall, then swinging hard to aim itself directly into the zone, ploughing through block after block, pivoting on clashing, sparking treads, and wrecking its way back towards the barricade line. It sighed through a cluster of high gable towers, sending stonework slumping into rubble and roof slates, shattering on the street like bombs. It scraped the side off an oddly angled construction that looked like a factory building, with enormous cathedral windows, exposing the maze of rotting interior walls. It drove straight down a row of sunken roof terrace houses, which collapsed at the kiss of the blade, their dirt-smeared windows and discoloured brickwork ground to powder under the majestic's bulk. Finally, the ironclad halted in the centre of the great canyon it had carved, a looming metal ghost behind veils of grey-brown dust. Its sirens whooped again, the challenge echoing away through the empty zone, and then from its gun ports came the cough of heavy mortar shots. The shells were filled with dye powders that burst in spectacular blooms overhead, checkering the air in vivid red and yellow. The cheers drowned out the final echoes of the cannonade. And that, it appeared, was that. The sirens fell silent. The colour bursts overhead began to drift and break up. The guards formed up along the broken stretch of wall, and convict chain gangs came marching past to start hauling the rubble away. It was when the brass band came by again, instruments in cases, jackets undone and ties half off looking for a pub that the event was generally held to be over. Bleary and a little hoarse but content, the crowd began to trickle away, and the Governor-General had not once shown his face. The great machine was many streets distant, the crowds of humans too far away to hear, but still the death throes of the buildings came through the earth. The traitors in human ears heard the glass tinkling ever so softly in the mosaic windows. His inhuman eyes saw the tiny vibrations shivering the reflections on the still water that flooded the chamber. He did not pause in his work. Had it all gone as he had once dared to dream it might, those buildings would still be standing. His kind had little use for this brick and stone maze full of ghosts and evil memories. But really that did not matter. Useful or not, it was theirs. Their city in their world. It was not there to be wrecked by manic, reeking, loose-fleshed intruders from beyond the breach. Yet here they were, trampling walls that had stood beneath the constellations for centuries, cheering at what they did. To the traitor, that summed them up perfectly. He held up the dead human's head, and tilted it this way and that, watching the way the watery grey eyes moved to keep looking into his. He had been right to come to the city. Simply picking apart the dead things that wandered the tunnels had taught him as much in a week as in months of poring over the half-ruined texts in his lairs in the hills. He had finally been able to produce the serum that the books had only hinted at, that had recrystallized the brainstem in a way that let the rotting head remember how to command a body. And now to give it a body to command... He surveyed the litter of metal and carrion around him, and began to select limbs to piece together. Yes, it had all gone as he had wished, 
he would be making this army in league with his blood tribe in the beautiful wilds, under the approving eye of Mother Lilith, ready to drive the invaders to extinction before a wave of their own vindictive dead. He had known what he was contemplating, had understood the violation and the guilt he was taking upon his head, but he had not been able to persuade them. Couldn't convince them there was no other choice than to accept the pollution of necromancy, martyr themselves to it, to make this world theirs again. And so here he was, caught and tried, sentenced and cursed, turned loose into exile, to crouch in this half-flooded conservatory in the sunken and rancid streets of the zone. And he would not let it stop him. He would show them that he had been right. Let them call him traitor. He would make sure they would still call him warrior, too. The water lapped about him, and the little army of remade corpses floating in the water or hanging from the ceiling stirred and wheezed. There were hours until nightfall, and more to do. His violet-skinned face serene in the dimness. Hey Reddin of the Nephilim worked on. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for part three of Shifting Loyalties.